The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. He was the greatest American since Washington, the victorious general who had saved the Union in wartime and offered peace and reconciliation afterward. His funeral was unmatched and his tomb a national landmark. That was then. Now he is forgotten by many and remembered by others as a butcher on the battlefield and a failure in the White House. What happened to the image and reputation of U.S. Grant, and why? Join us today for a conversation with Dr. Joan Waugh, author of U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth, on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Are you living the call? Tune in for a show about living, loving, and overcoming. You will learn about how to overcome the obstacles in your life firsthand from a host who has done that and so much more. Kelly Tyler. Kelly and her guests will inspire and entertain you each week with stories of their challenges and how they came out victoriously. Wherever you may be on life's journey, you will get the direction and hope that you need. Living the Call is live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a chilly Friday afternoon in December 2009 from the campus of East Carolina University in the fortress-like Brewster Building where the cold water uh, flows from the taps, hot water having been turned off to save money in our current financial crisis. Um, Next, they'll be rationing uh, who knows what oxygen. But although speaking from ECU, also Conference USA champs, we'll talk about in a moment, uh, but not speaking for ECU or on its behalf, and I know my guest will speak for herself and not her institution, uh, those legal niceties done away with, uh, campus here is in the midst of final exams. Uh, this morning, uh, students had one in, in my one of my classes, uh, so things are quiet. People are intent. A contrast from last weekend when the Pirates of ECU defeated uh, who did we play last week? Uh, uh, somebody from Texas, Houston, University of Houston, to win the title of the Conference USA, which. Uh, apparently stands for universities scattered aimlessly, as it includes uh, Eastern, uh, a team like ours from Eastern Carolina, but also uh, Texas, uh, Virginia, uh, uh, 
Florida, uh, literally teams scattered all over the country. The travel bills are outrageous. It's uh, uh, it's the best of the second-rate conferences, and the Pirates are happy to win it, but uh, it, it's a weird place to be playing football or anything. Uh, football was all we played last week. I know many listeners are, are more not so interested in college football, but they're very interested in the Greenville Stars uh, girls 14 and under soccer team uh, that I coach. Uh, you're interested because I tell you about them. And our big end-of-the-season tournament last weekend was rained out uh, at 2 p.m. Friday, uh, we didn't get to play. Uh, it was not a, a great Friday. And things didn't get better because we had no live show last week. Um, uh, there was a, a mix-up, uh, not for the first time this season, the the press of uh, real-life events here uh, on campus caused me to uh, to, to drop a link in the communications chain and not make sure that the guests knew when and where uh, and who to call and how to get on. Um, so, uh, as I said, not not the first time that's happened this season. It, it's been rare in the past, but uh, it does increase my respect for uh, someone like George McClellan who can uh, get 100,000 people from one place to another. It was hard enough trying to figure out how to get uh, 15 girls and their families from Greenville to Norfolk, Virginia, for a soccer tournament. Uh, how, uh, or to get one person on the line for an interview, uh, he did a lot more than that. So, without uh, saying anything about his, his leadership overall, uh, those of us who, who uh, conduct campaigns from the armchair often overlook how difficult the simplest thing is in real life uh, until they go wrong, and then you realize it's not easy. Uh, speaking of uh, shows that aren't happening, this is a uh, a notice that this will be our last show for the semester and the calendar year. Uh, Civil War Talk Radio will take a hiatus over the winter break. Uh, uh, the university will be quiet, and I'll be moving on doing some other things and then traveling in January. So there will be no new show until the uh, third week. I think January 22nd uh, will be our next live show. Uh, in the meantime, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area, I will be speaking at the Soldier's Home, the Lincoln uh, Cottage in Washington, D.C., on January 14th. So if you're anywhere around the nation's capital, drop by. It's always good to see Civil War talk radio listeners, uh, uh, and I'd be happy to uh, chat with you and get your thoughts on the show. You're also welcome, of course, always to send uh, ideas for future guests to the show, uh, and also always uh, more than uh, welcome to send donations to CivilWarTR at AOL.com using PayPal, which donations are used to buy books or sometimes brandy to sip while reading the books. It's not a charity. It's not tax deductible. It's just for me. Uh, but that's often where the books come from that we talk about each week on the show. And one more news item before we get uh, get into the heart of things. Uh, I received email from a, a listener this week pointing out that the the casino forces are back at it on the Gettysburg battlefield, and that a local businessman is now trying to buy the Eisenhower uh, Conference Center, and, and which is just south of the battlefield on on U.S. 15, the Emmitsburg Road with the idea of getting some sort of uh, legal change so that he can uh, turn that into a casino. 
unlike the last time uh, gambling in Adams County came up uh, a year or two ago and was defeated by uh, local forces, this one is not just sort of near the battlefield. It's really right on it and would would be... Uh, it's hard to imagine how it would not have a negative impact on the Gettysburg site. If you're interested, uh, a website you can go to learn more about this is called uh, nocasinogettysburg.ning.com. So if you're uh, interested in it, uh, that N-I-N-G looks funny, but that's what it says here. Uh, Well, Google No Casino Gettysburg, and you'll find the website and uh, uh, see what they're about and see if there's any role Uh, you might want to play in that situation. So enough about the continuing Civil War. We move back now to the the one that ended, uh, in theory, at least 150 years ago. Uh, uh, With our our guest today uh, from UCLA, uh, Professor Joan Waugh. Joan, are you there? I am. Wonderful. I I apologize for the the mix-up you and I had a couple weeks ago. I'd been looking forward to that uh, uh, talk and didn't quite work out, but I'm delighted that you're here today. Well, I'm delighted, too. UCLA is also in its final exam week, so we have a quiet campus. That's nice. Quiet, yet yet the tension is is high. The tension is high, but it's Friday. That is nice. That's the last day. Uh, And I I just want to say I'm sorry, too. We couldn't talk a few weeks ago, but I'm delighted to be your last guest before you take a break. Well, this is... uh, it, 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 as I said, it's something I'm looking forward to. I, I do uh, make it a point in order to have some sort of respectable conversation to read uh, uh, who, who, the book we discuss each week. But some weeks that means it's Friday lunch and I'm paging through frantically, turning whole handfuls in my, uh, at a time. And other weeks I'm able to get hold of it a couple weeks in advance, read it at bedtime, and actually make something out of it. And yours is certainly the latter uh, case. Uh, you and I talked about this book Oh, a couple of years ago at Chapel Hill, we were at a conference, and you gave a talk on it. Yes. And I remember asking you about being on the show, and you said, let's wait till the book comes out, which now it has done. Uh, so this has been in the works for a while, and a lot of people have been looking forward to it. Is it uh, how's the reception so far? Well, I've been really pleasantly surprised that it has been received well. It's gotten reviews in the Washington Post and the Chicago Tribune. It sold very well, and it was picked up by three book clubs. So I'm, uh, I'm feeling good about that, and I'm feeling uh, somewhat vindicated in that. When I first began the project, and I described it to various people, uh, that it was not a biography but a work of memory, often the response would be, "Oh, that's the most boring part." <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, of Grant's career. So what I, what I really like about the, the modest success that the book has enjoyed is that people who do read it find that it, pre- it presents Grant in another way that perhaps they hadn't thought of. So it, so it appeals to those who don't know very much about Grant but are interested in the way that memory works, and it appeals to those who know a lot about Grant but n- had never thought of him in the way that I described in the book. Well, this is interesting because there are these these different audiences, uh, you know, those who know a lot about Grant who might come from a Civil War military interest perspective, uh, and those from the memory side. When you say people said, oh, that's boring about the memory side, 
certainly within academia uh, and certainly within Civil War studies, memory has been the hot thing for the last uh, maybe decade now. It has, um, and, and in fact, that's I became interested in memory as a, as a venue for exploring Civil War themes and and the idea of Grant as a hero and, and as a myth in American history because of a conference I went to, and I believe it was in Chicago in 1996. It was devoted to memory, American memory. It was a uh, organization of American history conference, and I went to so many incredibly interesting panels and it, that it just sort of blew me away, and I thought, well, this would be a good way for me to... I, I had just begun teaching the Civil War class at UCLA, lecture class, having been hired a, a couple years earlier. And I was looking to, to write about the Civil War, but I wanted a bridge between my previous work and, and work that would be new to me. And I, th- I thought that memory would be a good way to, to create that bridge. Well, you mentioned teaching a class on the Civil War, and that brings up something I can't that I want to ask you about, and I want to phrase this uh, carefully and very specifically as a question about the academy today, not not about your specific experience. Um, you open your acknowledgments with with this sentence: "I never visited a Civil War battlefield or read a military account of the Civil War until after I began teaching UCLA undergraduates the history of that conflict." And that struck me when I read it. Certainly, Candor is, is, is admirable. Uh, but it struck me as if, if I were to say that I graduated from a university, uh, oh, I have to say it's Harvard because I, that's the one perk I get on the show is <laughs> I don't get paid. I get to tell people I have a Harvard degree. I have a Harvard degree. I teach at a state university. I teach American history. I've never read a book about women in American history, but I do... But I do teach the survey anyway. I, I would never get hired if I made a statement like that. Uh, uh, 30, 50 years ago, you could get hired. You could say, oh, I read one book about women, but I know all about the Civil War. Now we've gone 50 years later where you can teach a class at UCLA and, and have a wide knowledge, obviously, to, to get hired at such an institution without ever having read a military account of the Civil War. What does that say about where we've... Has the pendulum swung over far? Well, I think that, as you well know, uh, military history is basically excluded from the curriculum in most universities and colleges. Would you agree with me? Absolutely, absolutely. And, And I was an innocent graduate student. I trained in U.S. 19th century history, and I loved it, and I had wonderful teachers and wonderful professors, and I learned a lot. When I took the undergraduate, my undergraduate lecture in Civil War history, here's what, here's what it was about. It was about the coming of the war, it was about emancipation, and it was about Reconstruction. There was one lecture on the military history of the war, and that is... Uh, that perhaps, as, as you suggest, that the pendulum was swinging in one way to make up for the the lack of information that previous generations showed in women and the home front and mm-hmm. emancipation in African Americans. And I I think that when I began teaching 
the civil I had read many books on the Civil War, but I, I could not lecture on the battles and I knew that that was wrong and that is when I began to to study and to read a lot of books on I, I'm not saying that I am as good a military historian as you are. I mean far from it or Carol Reardon or any of the other well known people but I I understand a lot more now because and it began when I began when I taught the subject and I realized oh this is the civil war it's a war <laughs> and everything else that happened was because of what happened on the battlefield and so I I have uh, educated myself I because of of my project on grant I decided to go to battlefields I went to a lot of them I even brought my UCLA students in a summer program f- five times to the battlefield of Gettysburg. And and I just felt, even though that wasn't a battlefield that obviously Grant was at, it still helped me understand the dynamics, the way in which soldiers fought, the orders that were given, and why, and all the kind of cultural and social and political and military questions that you can, that you should bring to your students. Well, I, I think that that's a uh... I can't tell you what a hopeful answer that that was to me to suggest that that the pendulum could indeed be swinging back. I I, I've get, I get occasional callers or, or, or more not callers but emails to this show uh, of people who who want to hear more about you know who moved to what flank at what time. Um, I, I'm I'm not a huge fan of the micro-tactical history. I, I enjoy them. I'll read one once in a while. But there's some people who live on a steady diet of that, excluding the larger meanings of the war. And that seems to me kind of, I wouldn't say pointless, but, but uh, uh, I'm not sure where it leads. But the other end of the pen, the other swing of the pendulum is, is to know nothing about the battles at all. And to meet in the middle, it, it seems to me, where we need to be, to understand, as you put it, that, that the whole war takes place on, uh, it all comes from what happens on the battlefield. To understand the home front, to understand emancipation, you have to know what's happening uh, uh, in the battles. So uh, I'm, I'm on my soapbox. I'll let you uh, continue. But but I, I, I was really struck by your comment, and, and your th- this book, I think, is stronger for, for growing out of that perspective. Well, that was, uh, I appreciate your saying that, because I believe it is, too. And I realized, very quickly when I began to do research on Grant and research on the memory of Grant and, and how it played out in the late 19th century, which is my focus, that I really couldn't begin to assess him or understand him or understand his achievements or why he was such a hero unless I educated myself much more intensively in the military campaigns of the Civil War. And I have come to admire the kind of, I think, real intelligence it takes to understand those flank movements and be be able to stand on a battlefield and talk about the battle in a way that commands attention. I can't do it myself. I need my notes wherever I am, I assure you. But it's, it's an amazing skill. And what's really amazing is the number of battlefield guides who are able to do it in a way that you're not bored, uh, that you're excited, that can combine political and military history. 
It is really an art to, to doing that. Uh, Ed Barst, the king of that, is coming uh, uh, to our neck of the woods in a month or so, and I always look forward to chatting with him about that, that very thing. We're going to take a short break now. We'll come back in just a minute. We're talking today with Joan Waugh about U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth, on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you could read only one book by a Civil War participant, what book should it be? The correct answer, Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant. We'll find out why when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. We go through so much stress in our lives. At work, at home, inside, outside, the kids, the pets, the boss, the bills. Are we destined to live a life of stress? No! We can live for our magical moments. Take a load of the stress off every week as we discover and uncover the stress in our lives. Host Heather Luzchek will deconstruct the issues that are bringing you stress in your life, unravel them, and bring you a life of bliss. Tune in Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern for Magical Moments on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Joan Waugh, author of U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth. And uh, we just heard a, a, a new commercial on uh, World Talk Radio, at least new to this show, I think, uh, about how to avoid stress and enjoy a magical moment. This show, for me, I don't know if uh, this works for every listener, but uh, after a week of administering as well as teaching and other things, uh, that go on uh, on campus uh, this hour when uh, the phone doesn't ring and the email isn't consulted and the door is not answered is is a magical moment. It's a, an hour-long vacation uh, uh, from my point of view. Um, I, I hope it is for some of those listening as well. Uh, well, in our first segment, we talked about uh, a little bit about how this book came to be and, and, and uh, uh, some of the, the background, but we didn't really get to, to Grant himself. And, Joan, I thought if we could start... Uh, uh, this book is not a biography, very clearly, but it does contain chapters that, that talk about Grant's early life uh, and, and uh, uh, military and political careers. Well, let's dig, dive right in with the first question uh, about Grant's personal life that everyone asks. Uh, uh, that, was he a drunk? And when when the late John Y. Simon was on the show a few years ago, the um, much-missed uh, uh, John Y. responded to that question. I was able to put the phone down for 15 minutes and let him go on uh, at, at, at length and, and delightful detail about that. Um, what, what's your view on that question? Well, that's... Uh, those are big shoes to fill, and I won't even pretend to think that I can. 
But I I would like to start by addressing your your question your your comment on the fact that I do the first three chapters uh, are cover Grant's life, and mm-hmm. I try to interweave his his life and his career together with myth and memory, and so I can build an argument for the people, the readers who would not be very well acquainted with Grant's life, so it would be shocking to them if I just started with the memory part and assumed they knew that Grant was a great hero becoming Mm -hmm. a myth in the late 19th century. And part of his life is the idea that he was an alcoholic. And if you ask me, was he a drunk or was he an alcoholic, I think there's a distinction between those two questions. Was he an alcoholic? I think that today, pretty much, we would answer yes, given what we know about the medical and physical basis of of alcoholism. Was he a drunk? I would say no. And the reason I make a distinction is that he clearly did have a problem with alcohol. I've read what John Simon has written about it. I've read with Brooks Simpson. I've read other people who've, scholars who have investigated this question, and there's no doubt that he did drink sometimes to excess. There's also no doubt that he had a physical weakness in terms of one drink was enough to make him seem very, uh, uh, very drunk. How often he did it is, is up for debate. And in fact, uh, it seems that th- this is what I say in my book, and after what I've read and what I what is now the, in the current literature, is that after all was said and done, he rarely drank and never when it counted. So, to me, having studied Grant and having read his letters and read his books and seen, uh, 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 you mentioned John Simon, who's the editor of 31 volumes of the papers of U.S. Grant, which just is an amazing repository of his, of all materials relating to his generalship and his presidency and afterwards, you would, uh, you would have to say that no drunk could do the things that he did, could write the things that he wrote, could write the way that he wrote. And I, I've been... In in answering that question or exploring that question, I would ask your listeners, and I would ask you to consider, would President Lincoln appoint a drunk to lead the armies, the northern armies? Do you think he would do that? I, I don't think so. Now, of course, uh, uh, the story was even apocryphal in Lincoln's time uh, about Lincoln saying whatever Grant drinks, uh, send a barrel to the other generals. Well, at least a uh, barrel. Uh, it, it might have might have helped, uh, but that does show that the stories were certainly circulating. Well, and uh, the story we stories were circulating. They, uh, as is the case today, politics, and I think the military is very much involved in politics. It was a blood sport, and attacks were made on character. This it wasn't just Grant; it was many people. It was Lincoln, and so these these attacks were one effective way to question his credentials, to question his laurels. And so it was done. And after the war, the charge of drunken butcher was made by the neo-Confederate historians who sought to denigrate him, who sought to tear him down. And there is always truth in some of these charges, and, and they knew it, and that's why it hurt so much for Grant. 
So a similar charge against Lincoln, that Lincoln was a drunk, which... which well, no, Stephen not, Douglas implied would never fly because well, it had no, nothing he, behind it. No, but but Lincoln was attacked on many other right in many other for many other character flaws. But but there, as you say, there has to be a grain of truth for yes. the yes. for the attack to work. Well, something Lincoln and Grant share in common to, to some extent is is a, a humble beginning. Uh, you, you make uh, you spend some time talking about the the horse trading story. Could you share that story and? Uh, from Grant's youth and, and, and what it means? Well, the, this is when Grant was, was a boy, and he had, uh, he had displayed a talent very early on for riding and training and breaking in horses, and he loved them. That's what he was really, really good at. He was also really good at working at his father's farm and enjoyed that as well, but as far as the 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 horse trading story it's it's um it, he he really wanted to own a beautiful horse a, a colt owned by a man called Mr. Ralston in his his town in small town in Ohio and he asked his father if he could buy the horse J- Jesse Grant and uh, Jesse said thought about it and said well okay uh, I'm going to offer this Mr. Ralston, who owned this beautiful colt, about $20. And Mr. Ralston said, well, thank you, but no thank you. Uh, I'm not going to sell it for anything less than 25 And Grant was, uh, was very excited about own- owning this horse. His father said, well, okay, I'll give you $25.00. You go to Mr. Ralston, and if he's going to ask for the full price, go ahead, pay for it if you can't, but promise me that you'll negotiate him with him and try and get it down to at least 20 And I, uh, Grant said exactly this in his memoirs. He said, when I got to Mr. Ralston's house, I said to him, Papa says I may offer you $20 for the cult, but if you won't take that, I am to offer you 22 and a half. And if you won't take that, to give you twenty-five. <laughs> and you'd think Mr. Wellston might have given the kid a break, but no, he didn't. He collected the full price, and uh, that story got out in Georgetown, which is where uh, Grant lived, and Georgetown, Ohio. And he was made fun of. And I think there, there are, uh, there have been several interpretations of what this meant to Grant in terms of his relationship with his father, Jesse. And one interpretation is that it was a huge psychological blow that Grant was humiliated. He was humiliated in, in front of the town, and he never forgot it. And he, it, it helped to make for a very troubled relationship with his father. Other interpretations stress that, uh, that uh, it, was, it was not that big of a deal it was a common occurrence to be embarrassed and humiliated if you were a 19th century boy, and Grant learned something from it. And the way that he presented it in his memoirs is obviously the way he wanted it to be remembered, that, in fact, even if he could have gotten a, a lower price, the horse was worth it. The, when he trained it, it was worth more than $25, and that it was an honorable transaction. 
it's one of those episodes, it's one of the many things that you read in history that you can interpret several ways. And the way that I choose to interpret it is that it was a character-building experience, like so many other experiences in Grant's life before he took command in the Civil War. Did that story become part of what people knew about Grant the way uh, people, even today, many people know the story about Abe Lincoln returning change to a customer and walking yes. miles. Did that become part of the, the common knowledge of Grant, that he yes, was an honest it, boy? Because when he rose to prominence, a lot of journalists in 1864 and 1865 were tr- putting out biographies to to satisfy the great demand for knowledge about this, this uh, emerging... Uh, hero in the war, and they usually uh, told the the story of the transaction. It was it was it was done in a very funny way. It was done to show that that he was too honest for his own good, and so yes, it became a part of the the myth about Grant. Well, let's move ahead to his his military career. Um, uh, obviously, there's a long string of, of unsuccessful years, uh, and then, then quite suddenly, he becomes uh, the, the leading general in in the Union war effort. Uh, how how exactly does that happen? Well, I would take a little bit of issue with your long string of unsuccessful years. I, I mm-hmm. know that he did. He was breveted twice for courage in the Mexican War. He struggled in the peacetime army. Then he resigned and had, I would describe, a a string of unsuccessful years trying to make it as a civilian. Mm. When he came into the war, when he was uh, the uh, when the war began, he actually was uh, rose very rapidly. What would you call it to be uh, a major general by 1862? Uh, when you start off as a lieutenant colonel, so I think that um, uh, I think that he rose uh, uh, quite quickly, and and I would suggest that we can go on with the character building experiences of Grant. When he came to the war, he was a mature man, and he was somebody who had been chastened by defeat, but not defeated by defeat, and so he out of the, the spotlight of the Easton Theater, he was able to put together a string of impressive victories at a time when there weren't that many. So, so at his, uh, when he captured Fort Donelson, he was really the first major hero of the war and gave hope to the northern nation that the war might be over more quickly than they had anticipated, if only McClellan could get his act together. And and that's a sharp contrast to McClellan, uh, the golden boy who never had any defeats in his life, really, until until yes. he becomes uh, a major general. Yes. Uh, so he had to learn how to deal with that. Grant yes, already that, had some right. practice. Uh, well, what so what qualities uh, do you see in Grant that, that, that cause him to win the, these victories at, at Fort Donaldson, at Shiloh? Uh, I mean, there are other great generals. What, what is it? What, what does Grant bring? Well, just in terms of of his, if you look at Grant, and you're right, there are other great generals. If you look at Grant and you look at how he came uh, from smaller battles 
battled Belmont in Missouri in 1861 and uh, just working his way up uh, uh, to prominence is that with each battle, I think he learned something, and he learned to be comfortable with command. He knew he was a good soldier from the Mexican War. He knew he had courage. He knew how to figure things out. He knew how to to move a, a volunteer army. And so with each battle, he learned a little bit more, and he was he, he was able to put together the strategy in the Western theater that would harmonize with Lincoln's plan for capturing the, the Mississippi. And he, he was aggressive. He was flexible. He was logistically uh, capable of moving his army as well as anybody uh, that, had, that was in, in charge of the increasingly large units that he was in charge. And, uh, and he, he could he could be indefatigable, and, and setbacks didn't bother him. And so I think, I think all those things uh, come together to make him really, by, by late 1863, as you know very well, Jerry, that the only Union general who had compiled the, the kind of record that would suggest he was capable of taking command of the whole U.S. Army. Well, he and he does that uh, as we see in 1864. Um, let's pass through the, the the Overland Campaign, the most uh, uh, talked about part of, of Grant's military career. Uh, certainly, uh, our listeners uh, have read about it, have heard about it. There's a current dispute about the the casualties at Cold Harbor, whether there were really seven thousand in half an hour, and so on. Uh, one can read north the, and south. The author suggests there's fewer than that. Yes, uh, there, yeah. there seems to be uh, that. Uh, certainly the case. But let, let's leap ahead uh, through the war. Grant compiles a, a, a truly a, a successful record, wins the war essentially in the East. And, uh, and even today, while there's controversy, some will still call Grant a butcher, others argue he was superior uh, to Lee. Uh, but then we get to Grant's uh, presidency. You have a wonderful cartoon reproduced in, in the book of, of Grant as an infant uh, in the arms of, of the various uh, Republican politicians, and they're going to raise him up and tutor him in the ways of politics. He, he was a great general, but now he's a baby. Still, he has a beard, but he's a baby. Right. Um, to the extent people remember Grant's political career at all, it's it's just an unmitigated disaster. He was surrounded by crooks, incompetent, naive. Uh, that's all the public knows about him, uh, to the extent people even think about his, his presidency. Uh, how accurate is that? Well, I, I suggest in my book that it's not accurate at all. Like many of the president's uh, careers that we look back on, we tend to stereotype, and, and we're satisfied with that. But when we dig, dig a little deeper, we find that oftentimes evaluating a president might take a more mature attitude. We might need to know a little bit more than, than we're satisfied with. So if you're satisfied with stereotypes about American history, Reconstruction is the easiest. It was the, the Civil War in popular memory. I would. You want me to stop now? Oh, well, that's a good time to take a break. We'll okay. do that because we're getting into a very interesting topic. So we'll take a short break. We'll come right back, talk more with Joan Waugh about U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth on Civil War Talk Radio. 
Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Who is buried in Grant's tomb? Our guest today knows the answer, and it's not what you think. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Sometimes it seems that life is just throwing you one obstacle after another. There are many people who have overcome or are overcoming their personal obstacles in order to succeed. Hear them talk about these barriers and how they overcame them on American Dreams, The Sky is the Limit, featuring host Jen Robertson. Jen herself overcame life struggles to become one of the most in-demand motivational speakers in the world today, as well as a best-selling author. Tune in to American Dreams, Wednesdays at 5 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Joan Waugh, professor of history at UCLA and author of U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth. And we've been talking about Grant's uh, career, uh, his military career, just started talking about his political career. Uh, and, and the question uh, that, that I posed a moment ago will return to is, is how, how is Grant's political career remembered? Uh, to the extent people think of it, they stereotype it as uh, a, a failure. Uh, but l- let me throw this out, uh, Joan, as we get back to this. Uh, you point out in your book that, that when U.S. Grant died, his funeral was an enormous uh, national event and that he was remembered in the immediate aftermath of his life as uh, on a par with Lincoln and Washington. Uh, Washington is still the father of our country. Lincoln is still uh, has a monument on the mall and is still uh, uh, remembered everywhere. Grant, no longer so. And that's really the, the, the crux of, of what this book is about. So let, let's jump in at that end. Uh, what happened to Grant's memory? He was replaced by Robert E. Lee. Ah, how did that happen? Lee lost. I know he did, but he lost so nobly, Jerry. That's, ah. that's the key. And I think that uh, it's, it's, of course, more complicated than just being replaced by Lee. It happened because people cared about it, and, and Confederate historians, ex-Confederate historians, such as Jubal Early and many more, uh, put forth the essential elements of their argument that that Grant was nothing more than a drunken butcher who had numbers and resources at his back. Anybody could have uh, could have won the war. I mean, that was their basic argument. And th- as a part of that, uh, in disparaging the Union cause and 
bringing to bear the fact that they weren't reconciliationists. They were they were uh, glorifying the lost cause that that this was an illegal uh, action by the part of the North, and uh, the Confederacy should have uh, been allowed to exist so forth and so on, and a part of their argument denigrating Grant and the Union cause and Lincoln was elevating Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia in particular, and thus the Confederate cause. And it is, as we talked about before, there are elements of truth in this myth, in, in all myths. And, but I would, I would say there's more truth in the myth of the Union cause than there is in the myth of the lost cause. One of the truths is that Robert E. Lee was a brilliant general. There's no doubt about that. He was an honorable man. He was somebody who was admirable. And I think as the, as the passion about the war receded, especially as the, the veterans died off, the Union veterans, and both sides, of course, died off, who cared most about the history of the Civil War? Well, it was the uh, white people of the South, or many of them. And because they kept writing this history, and this history of not only the war and Grant's reputation and Reconstruction was was taken up in movies such as Gone with the Wind, which probably has more to do with shaping people's view of the Civil War than any other, all the books put together, uh, and of course it's Lost Cause, uh, but they they influenced the early academic historians like William A. Dunning at Columbia University, who was a pro-Southern historian who wrote about Reconstruction the same way, uh, except with lots of evidence for it, that that neo-Confederate historians wrote about, or Confederate ex-Confederate historians in the 1890s and the early part of the 20th century. And that really has... The grip has loosened on academics who write about Reconstruction now. In fact, much of the the previous ideas about Reconstruction that were put forth in academic histories, for example, that it was a, a complete unmitigated disaster and debacle and that it was the North exercising the, the power of the oppressor over a defeated, helpless region, putting... Uh, buffoonish uh, black politicians in charge of defense of white people. That has been completely overturned in academic li- literature. But yet the negative pr- uh, assessment of Grant's presidency remains pretty much intact until really a few years ago. Uh, do you foresee that continuing to change? Do you think... Uh... Uh, writing on Grant uh, will eventually uh, rehabilitate him and, and eventually spread to the public view as well. I'd, I really have, I really have doubt wh- doubts whether the public or po- in popular culture, the public view, as you want to describe it, can change. But I think it there there is uh, a new interpretation or a reinterpretation of Grant's presidency that has emerged, and it. it started emerging uh, in the middle of my project, which made it very interesting to me. And I think Brooke Simpson has a lot to do with it. He wrote a book called Let Us Have Peace that presaged, it's about the the two years that Grant was in charge of the U.S. Army working with Andrew Johnson. And when I read that book, it was just one more 
book, and, and it was published in the mid-1990s, that, that made me think I was on the right track in writing about Grant and memory, that, that here was someone who was serious about policy, who was regarded as the most powerful man in the United States. And really, when you think of it, from 1862 to 1876, he was the most powerful man in the United States, second to Lincoln, at least, during the Civil War. And so it's just fascinating the way that the new material that has been made available in the papers of U.S. Grant has helped scholars by concentrating this material in one uh, large bookshelf of a primary documents that that I think are has helped scholars to begin to reevaluate his presidency in positive ways. It's, I, I doubt that he'll ever be a great president, but I've I've said before that I believe he wasn't. He may not be a great president ever, but he is an essential president, and maybe that means something really important that we can explore. And I think it's not just Brooke Simpson, but it's also. Uh, Josiah Bunting, who who published a nice small book, uh, but very thoughtful and very uh, fascinating in terms of of revising Grant's presidential reputation upwards, or at least giving it a second look. And then Gene Edward Smith, a large volume, a whole biography of Grant, but also he really defends Grant's presidency uh, more strongly than than anyone. In recent and years, so uh, we we may see future biographies. Uh, um, but I'm looking forward to uh, Charles Calhoun. I believe is working on one, and uh, we we may. Well, we may I do. understand H. W. Brand is working on one, and Ron White, Ronald White, who mm-hmm. who published a best-selling biography of Abraham Lincoln last year, and then Volume Two of Brooke Simpson's. Book. So uh, we we will certainly hear hear more. Yes. Um, when you talked about Lee replacing Grant and the lost cause, uh, uh, the appeal of it, it seemed like Grant anticipated this in his own uh, his own writings, his own memoirs. He's very clear about the the relative moral value of the Union and Confederate causes. He, he makes no mistake that the lost cause deserved to lose. Yes, uh, or the Confederate cause. Yes. Yes, to him, and and one can when one goes to read the memoirs one has to know that he's writing his autobiography. He's writing his account from his perspective on the war. And it is very strong, and I think that very strong in in defending the Union cause, the righteousness of the Union cause, which we often forget. Oh, yes, there was a reason, an ideological reason, that Northern soldiers were fighting. Not every soldier was fighting for the same set of ideals, that's true. Maybe some soldiers weren't fighting at all for ideals, but many of them were. What were they? And Grant reminds us throughout his memoirs. It's, it's a military narrative of the war, but it's also laced with ideology and laced with an, and an argument that refutes what he regarded, and, and this was true because Jubal Early and Edward Pollard and other Lost Cause historians were coming out with their books, with their defenses, with their attacks on the the, the North during this time, and he was keenly aware of that. And and, uh, and he had no no patience with it. Certainly, um, let me ask a, a question that I asked during the uh, 
the introduction between segments, and I don't want to leave our listeners hanging. Uh, and this will get us talking about contemporary memory of Grant, uh, perhaps. Uh, who is buried in Grant's tomb, and where does that question come from for for our younger listeners out there? <laughs> well, the question comes from who is buried in Grant's tomb, which Grant's tomb, the largest tomb in the United States, is in Manhattan, and it is. Uh, the, the story, the the question, who is buried in Grant's tomb, is from a, a quiz show that was popular in the 1950s, uh, that and was presided over by a very famous uh, comedian, Groucho Marx. And his question was, it's so it was designed to trick people because who's buried in Grant's tomb? The it it, it would prompt you to say. Uh, so, something like, was George Washington buried? Because you think it's a, a trick question, because it should be easy, Grant. But actually, the true answer to it is nobody, because Grant and his wife Julia are entombed in Grant's tomb. They're buried uh, there in uh, a sarcophagus. You know, I can't even pronounce the, the, it right the now. Sar- sarcophagus. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they're not buried. They're not underground. They're not underground. They're entombed. Interesting. So now this tomb you mentioned is the largest one in the United States. Uh, it was built when it was built. Uh, it was the same sentiment that helped build the Lincoln Memorial, make it a, a national monument. But by the nineteen late eighties, early nineties, Grant's tomb was uh, uh, in disrepair, a haven for drug dealers. Did you uh, say eighteen nineties? In nineteen nineties, yes, I'm sorry. Because in the, in, it was dedicated in 1897, mm-hmm. uh, just as a million and a half people attended Grant's funeral pro- uh, procession in uh, when he died mm-hmm. in 1885, so too did a million and a half witness the opening in 1897. And people are always surprised when I say it was the most popular visited monument in New York City up to the 1920s. And But by the 1960s and 70s, and actually before this, that it had huge problems with upkeep and maintenance uh, from the 1930s onward, I would say. But by the 1960s and 70s, it was a haven for graffiti artists, for drug dealers, and and homeless people. It was it was a disaster. What happened? Did 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 it get turned around? Well, yes, uh, there uh, there was a campaign, uh, and I think that it, uh, this campaign to to clean up Grant's tomb was part of a renewed interest in the Civil War that came with Ken Burns's uh, documentary on the Civil War, and also people uh, making uh, waves about the that, that this was a scandal, that this monument to a great. Uh, general and president had been allowed to fall into such disastrous disrepair. And so the National Park Service raised money and cleaned it up and in 1997 opened it again. And and uh, dedicated it. So it is once again a reasonable place to visit. It's once again a, a beautiful place to visit, just nobody goes there. Ah. Very few people. 
Well, let me quote one last line from from your book. We're unfortunately at the end of our time, but uh, you say of Grant, no living person in the post-war era symbolized both the hopes and lost dreams of the war more fully than Grant. I wish we had another hour to to unpack that sentence, uh, but instead we'll have to leave our listeners uh, with the, the recommendation they go out and get a copy of U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth, uh, read it for themselves and, and learn how this memory uh, came to be so grand and then came to disappear from our our popular culture scene. Joan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jerry. I enjoyed it. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 